fundamentally not true. There are times when your body responds in a way that it's trying to deal with the environment, and there's not a single response I could think of that I would say that's universally bad. Welcome to the On Wisdom podcast with Igor Grossman and Charles Cassidy. Over the next hour, we'll be dissecting the latest research from the emerging field of wisdom science. We will discuss what it means for each of us and for society in terms of reasoning and living more wisely in the 21st century. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in, and thank you for the kind and generous uh, ratings on iTunes. Today's episode, episode 10, by the way, double figures, you know, which is which is quite an achievement. So if you hear fireworks going off in the background, it's because it's episode 10. And we have, we're very excited to have Wendy. Barry Mendes with us today. So, uh, Wendy, maybe you could tell us a little bit about what you do. Sure, and thank you for having me. Uh, I'm a professor in a psychiatry department uh, at UC San Francisco, and even though I'm in the psychiatry department, I'm trained as a psychologist, and I um, am a social psychologist who uses uh, the brain and the body to tell me about how people are feeling, what they're thinking. Um, So I study how emotion and stress is manifested in the body. Great. All right. Well, Eagle, you had some questions for us to uh, to get the ball rolling. Right. So today's episode is devoted to various ways, as Wendy already alluded to, how the body may be connected to the brain and how we react to various situations in our daily life. So to start off, let's just think, all of us, what kind of situations stress us out. I mean, okay, I have to pull the Russian here again. Let's start with the <laughs> negative. <laughs> so, Wendy, question to you. Are there any situations for you in particular that stress you out the most? If you want to share. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, so uh, you two probably know, but for those who don't know, you know, there's a common saying uh, in psychology and, and people who conduct research is that research is me-search, right? We, so the idea yeah. that we tend to choose topics that are personally fascinating to us, mm. maybe for some reasons that we have yet not completely understood um, our own foibles. So I'm somebody who um, throughout my life has sort of thought about how best to manage stress, whether it's acute stress or, or chronic stress. So just to go back a little bit too far than I uh, want to admit, but I grew up and I was a classically trained ballet dancer. Oh, and when you're a dancer, you have to go on stage and right, there's lots of mm. sort of evaluation and demands on right. you, but you don't have to speak. And there's a huge benefit in that, you know, I didn't have to go out in front of, you know, thousands of people mm. and give a speech. But then I, when I retired, I got injured and retired, uh, and I started, you know, college, and I had to get up in front of a class or, or do any kind of uh, public presentation, and gosh, acute stress just would completely undermine my performance, yeah. right? My body would betray me. Yeah. I would get nervous, and I would tremble, and my mouth would get dry. And I thought it was fascinating that as a dancer, I had so much control mm-hmm. over right. my body. But here, as as somebody for whom now it's about what I was thinking and and my competence and my ability to sort of put words together, now my body was actually hurting my performance. So I think that just sort of planted a seed of interest for me on studying how acute stress uh, would change body responses and how acute stress could either make you perform worse, right? So those vivid examples of my life when I was completely paralyzed by acute stress and other times where I can think of that the stress helped me or facilitated my performance. So lots of things still get me stressed, but I think over the years, either a combination of of, um, age and experience, but also what I've learned from my own research, I think I manage stress better. 
that's really interesting. Like from a former uh, dancer to another former dancer, how did you manage that stress? And I was like, I could never bring it under control, especially like if it's right before the competition. Um, this was something that, uh, I mean, it doesn't matter how many years passed, but uh, even uh, right before I stopped dancing, it, it was always a little bit, uh, you, you always have this kind of anxiety uh, right before the performance, right? Yeah, I think that's normal. And then the question is sort of how do you sort of take what's, you know, your body is telling you, you need metabolic energy to do this. And right. then you have to, of course, have that extra demand of evaluation and, and fear and uncertainty. So I, I think there's something very adaptive and functional about our body responding that way. And then the question is, you know, how do you um, sort of make sense of it? And I think the worst thing that anyone could ever do is really ruminate. Once the performance is over, it's over and you have to look forward and not backwards. Mm -hmm. So I think that's what saved me as a dancer. So did you do any tricks uh, like before the performance or or now when you give talks, uh, are there any special tricks of uh, uh, Wendy that you would be willing to share? Yeah, well, I wish I had them as a dancer. Uh, So I didn't have them back then. But I would say now when I think about managing an acute stress response, I think of sort of psychological approaches and physical approaches. So physical Mm -hmm. approaches are sort of the easiest to think about first. Uh, One of the things that happens under acute stress is your sympathetic nervous system really starts getting fired up. People sort of think about that as like the fight-flight response, that large sympathetic uh, response. But sympathetic nervous system in itself isn't a bad thing, right? It's, it right. is helping your body sort of, you know, give you more metabolic energy. But that racing heart can uh, sort of make people feel uncomfortable, make them feel a little jittery. So a physical trick that I think is um, highly effective is a, a paced breathing. So paced breathing is mm-hmm. the idea that you can um, control your respiration. In fact, it's really the only autonomic response that we have that we are in direct control, right? I can right. change my respiration. I can't change my heart rate, but indirectly I can change my heart rate through respiration. So Mm -hmm. if I use paced respiration at a rate of shorter inhalation and longer exhalation, and, and here's a good ratio, five seconds of inhalation and eight seconds of exhalation. So you breathe in for five seconds, you hold it for two, and then you take a long breath outward. Uh, mm-hmm. And you let that go eight seconds. What that does is it increases the vagal control of your heart and that helps slow down your heart rate. So that's a really quick, easy little life hack, physical intervention that somebody can do. You do that for like five to six trials, and you can at least slow down your heart rate a little bit. So that's sort of a physical approach, but you can take a psychological approach too. Some of these things kind of take anticipation or or pre-planning, but if you think about, you know, what makes something stressful? Well, it's demanding, right? It's important to you, right? Something's on the line. Um, What also stressful things that are novel if you've never done it before or that there's uncertainty like how well am I going to do back to Igor and I talking about dancing Mm. right or any kind of athletic performance you're not totally certain what's going to happen and that uncertainty is part of what makes something very stressful and then how difficult it is right so those those are your demands and then and and those are almost always set, right? Like we don't have too much control over demand. So then the question is, what could you do or any
any of those aspects of demands, can you do something about it? Well, mm-hmm. one of the easiest ones is something like novelty, right? So anytime that I have um, students about to go take a standardized test, for example, I always recommend that they go to the room prior to where the test is going to be and just familiarize yourself with the room, right? There's something about reducing the novelty of your surroundings. And then there's like what your resources are. What do you bring to it? And you can think of your resources as, you know, the support of others, you know, are people there either, you know, physically or just kind of in your, you know, in your phone looking at a, at a picture of people you love right before something stressful, just that sort of extent to which you're loved and have a connection with individuals can at least sort of give you the perception that you have resources, your knowledge and abilities. So obviously preparation helps. And then there's some things that are less changeable, like your dispositions, like who are you? What are your traits? Um, There are some people who are just highly anxious and it's going to be a little bit more difficult to um, reduce their acute stress responses. Um, Though I still think a a little bit of familiarity could help. So let's step back a little bit. Stress is used in in sort of common language as a bad word. You know, it's, uh, oh, I'm so stressed. You're never like, oh, well done. Congratulations. Um, So (laughs) it has a negative uh, association. But through reading some of the papers that uh, you sent over, there's this idea of good stress and bad stress. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about perhaps the sort of the, the positive side of stress, because we tend to, everyone's probably familiar with the idea of being panicked and nervous, but what is this sort of um, adaptive side of stress? What, what's going on there? From a layperson's perspective, when we say stress, when people say stress, they almost always mean a negative response. But I think it's important to step back and, and ask how is your body responding to something that is demanding in which you have to perform? There's some, something at stake. And if you think about how your body responds at the broadest level, there's at least two different ways that your body responds. One way that's going to undermine performance and, and actually make you perform worse, right? So you can imagine your heart beats fast, but the vessels that are carrying your blood out to your brain and your effector muscles down to your, you know, out to your hands and um, to your feet all throughout your body, your vessels um, are constricting or tightening up. So you're an mm-hmm. acute stress response that's high heart rate, but then the vessels, and you almost can think of it like the plumbing, you know, the, the, the plumbing that gets all this blood, oxygenated blood out to your body is tightening. Those vessels are constricting. So now you're not getting this delivery of metabolic demand. That does things like obviously increases blood pressure, but also like makes your hands and fingers cold, right? Less of blood is getting out to your hands and and your hands are um, are cold as a result. You have less, less dexterity. So that's the, the classic sort of acute stress response. It's going to hurt um, your ability to either uh, perform quickly, reaction times, but also think quickly. But you can have an acute stress response that actually is quite positive and very adaptive. Uh, think of a time when um, you were about to perform and everything was right. You were prepared. You were familiar. You you had a sense that it was going to go well and you get out there and you start doing well, whether it's a speech or a dance or whatever. What's Mm -hmm. happening um, there in your body is yes, your heart rate is still increasing. And in fact, heart rate in itself is a very poor indicator to tell whether somebody is having a good stress response or a bad stress response. Now, um, a positive or good stress response is associated with those same blood vessels that I talked about constricting and getting tighter, dilating, opening up. You know, you can imagine like a hose just opening up and those vessels are then able to carry out more oxygenated blood to your brain, to your muscles, and you can have a boost 
boost in performance, both thinking faster, reaction time. I think almost everybody can think back on a time where that energy, that feeling of excitement and energy helps them perform better. They perform better than they ever could have if they hadn't had that positive stress response. So when we think about stress, yes, there's these two, at least two different ways to think about an acute stress response. One, that's the standard way that's going to hurt your performance. It's maladaptive. Mm -hmm. And the other that actually energizes you and and gives you that boost of metabolic energy to help you perform even better than if you hadn't had any kind of stress response. So how would the... um how can we predict which way the body's going to respond? Yeah, so we can think of um, the one of the classic ways to differentiate whether somebody's going to have a good stress, what we call challenge response, versus a bad stress or threat response, is um, how they appraise the situation, how they think about the situation right before right, it goes right. in. And that's mm-hmm. how we sort of differentiate what I was talking about earlier with like the demands and the resources. So to the extent that something's really demanding, right, it's important, I have a test, I better do well, or I'm not going to get into my favorite grad school or, or, you know, I'm going to give a job interview and I'm not going to get the job. So the extent that it's demanding, you may or may not have a lot of control. But how you appraise your resources, like, so I think I'm going to do well, I have the knowledge and abilities, I've made it familiar, I feel supported. So the extent that the resources exceed the demands, and this is not an algorithm, this is like a fuzzy heuristic, but people who <laughs> yeah. perceive uh, their resources as exceeding their demands are more likely to have the positive challenge response. When your demands outweigh your resources, right, so everything's on the line, it's novel, it's uncertain, I'm not prepared, that would be um, a time when you would feel more threatened, and then your body would sort of follow suit uh, with those appraisals. So we think of sort of the, the mind state then influencing the body state. So, so someone could, if they were in a, a situation when they they felt sort of a threat response, if they were somehow able to convince themselves that they had the resources, that might make them less stressed. It doesn't. It's no guarantee that they're going to have the resources. But so here's some bad news. So, so uh, because of the way our body responds, once you're threatened. It's much more difficult, and so it's not a perfect symmetrical bidirectional response from challenge to threat and threat to challenge, and some of that is just a physiologic reason. So once you start vasoconstricting, it's very difficult mm-hmm. or takes longer for the body then to relax and vasodilate. But if you're vas- so that so if you're constricting, it's harder to then open up. It just Turn takes it much okay. longer. Yeah. But if you are you know having a good challenge response, it doesn't take much to make you threatened. Now this might seem like kind of bad news for us. But if you think of sort of our ancestral past, you would want a body that is going to be probably more defensive functionally and adaptively. Mm -hmm. It's probably better off that um, these systems don't work so symmetrical. Mm. And we're talking about sort of the evolutionary reason behind it. It seems that most of the time it would be beneficial to have the challenge response. But the fact that the the threat response seems to in some way kind of dominate and and be a bit of a stronger effect. That's not quite the correct way of putting it but harder to turn it around from the threat response what's going on there evolutionary is that just kind of encouraging us not to sort of be too bold and not take unnecessary risks what's kind of going on there it's sort of very interesting this um entire evolutionary frame you know for because i think at first it does seem like a threat response wouldn't be functional but think of the times Mm -hmm. and sort of what the body's doing under a threat response is um less blood is getting out to the effector muscle so if one were you know 
cut uh, or you know harmed in some way in a threat response, it would take longer to bleed out. Now, that's pure right. speculation. I don't know if that's why we have the threat response. But there's some conservation of energy. Um, there are also some studies that show under a threat response, people are better at detecting at detecting danger in their environment. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a narrowing of attention. So I think functionally there, um, those kind of threat responses make sense. So I, I think, uh, you know, a body that's able to flexibly respond to the environment mm-hmm. is what makes sense from uh, a preservation, right? If, if somebody were only challenged or only threatened, I think that would be um, obviously a concern and probably not very good for a species to survive. But it's more about adapting to your specific context. I wanted to ask about the, the sort of, uh, rather than the sort of acute response, the, the long, longer term effects of stress on the body. And just when I'm first saying that, it sounds like many headlines that I've seen, you know, stress is bad for the body, et cetera, et cetera. But now you're sort of de- delineating these kind of two different responses, the challenge and, and threat responses. Is there any kind of data about, the thing is, I don't know how you'd isolate one group that only has challenge challenge responses over the course of their life it's impossible to do but can you tell us anything about long-term effects on the body of the different kinds of stress yeah I, absolutely and, and you know one of the unfortunate parts of health psychology and biological psychology is that we stupidly decided to call acute stress and chronic stress the same word so acute stress mm. is really different than chronic stress so think of chronic stress as sort of that oppressive unremitting sort of constant sort of burden on you we think of chronic right chronic stress doesn't dissipate it isn't a moment a punctate experience like an emotion that goes away mm-hmm. so chronic stress rarely has you know clear benefits though some people mm-hmm. certainly identified those situations where so for example one of the classic studies is of maternal caregivers so mothers who have a sick child that they're taking care of, uh, who we think of as under chronic stress, right? That isn't going to go away soon. And for at least uh, about 20, 25% of those mothers over time will develop a more positive sort of psychological meaning in their lives. They'll be better off in well-being. Now, a lot of this is sort of meaning-making. They're, mm-hmm. you know, they're grateful for the time that they have. The other 25% um, will have no change, but it's the remaining 50% of those maternal caregivers have worse health over the time uh, of their child's sickness. Now, that's fascinating, right? Because it's not your sickness. It's just somebody who you love the most in the world. And that sort of chronic and oppressive stress is is highly damaging for your health so i just wanted to clarify one thing before we moved on are you saying then chronic stress has you kind of outlined the the effects of chronic stress but acute stress does that not have long-term effects on the body yeah and thanks for circling back to that so if somebody repeatedly had a threat response let's say either because the situation was completely overwhelming or something about them they were somebody who appraised the events as always more demanding than their resources that chronic stress response is actually very damaging um, especially Mm -hmm. cardiovascular system because think about what's happening physiologically right you have this large sympathetic charge so your heart's beating hard and fast but those vessels are constricting. And what that does is it puts so much damage on that endothelial lining that you could create little tears um, in the lining. And that's what can fill up with plaque and could be related to heart disease. So um, there have been a few studies that have looked at those who have acute threat responses sort of dispositionally, or they're in situations in which they have acute Mm -hmm. threat responses, and they are more likely um, to have essential hypertension, but also 
of cardiovascular disease and more occlusion in the arteries. And I'm thinking uh, on the flip side of something like a fireman or a, you know, a trauma surgeon, do they, do they, can you not have sort of ongoing acute challenge responses? Because after a while you just become quite skilled and your, your resources increase. So you can't constantly feel that threat. So do you just become too experienced? Yeah, I'd love that you mentioned that. We actually have a, a study ongoing right now with um, operating room uh, right, surgical right. teams. Yeah. And these are highly skilled you know, veterans in the surgical team. And we still see, um, you know, in some cases, it might be you know, their, their hundredth surgery in a year, and yet they still have a large sympathetic nervous system increase at critical times during the surgery. But here's oh. what's characteristic of them. And these are highly you know, healthy men and women, um, sur- male and female surgeons, is that they recover quickly, meaning that once the surgery is over, their autonomic nervous system returns to baseline right. within minutes. Right. So they're so one, they have a strong response when the surgery first starts. They habituate during the surgery. When there are moments of emergency, they quickly respond again, again, within seconds. If a patient has any kind of you know uh, emergency or anything critical happening within the surgery, within seconds, you see the surgeon responding physiologically. They deal with the situation, but then when the surgery is over, say you had a surgeon whose resting heart rate was 70 beats per minute. They might get up to 100, 105 beats per minute during the surgery. They're walking out of the surgery and they're back at 70. Now that's a really (laughs) impressive, flexible autonomic nervous system that is able to deal with the task at hand, but then also recover quickly. That's very interesting. So now we're we're talking about this flexible nervous system. And you already alluded that there are multiple things, of course, at play. We talked about the endocrinology. We talked about the respiration. But one thing that uh, you, Wendy, have done a lot of work on in particular is the heart rate, right? And the relationship between the heart and the environment and different markers that you can obtain. And especially the marker that has this strange name of, well, for some of our listeners, probably vagal flexibility. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about the vagus nerve first, and also in general, how do you differentiate between the vagal tone on the one hand and vagal flexibility on the other hand? Sure. So, um, so I'll just back up a little bit uh, and and uh, mention. So, heart rate is you know maybe it's the the response that we know the best from our body, right? How many beats per minute is our heart um, beating? And and some right. of us might even like be able to guess what our heart rate is. But if you actually saw your ECG ECG or electrocardiograph signal come in, what you would notice is that the distance between each of your heartbeats are variable, right? Mm -hmm. So I might have one heartbeat uh, and then 800 milliseconds later have another heartbeat, but then my third heartbeat is 720 milliseconds later, and the one after that is 900. In other words, your heart is not like a metronome. Mm -hmm. It's variable. Now, that variability is really interesting, and they used to think it was just like measurement error, like that wasn't supposed to be there. But it turns out that variability is at least partly due to the vagus nerve. Now, the vagus nerve is the largest nerve in the human body. It starts at the brain, and it's also called cranial nerve number 10. This nerve, vagus, is Latin for wandering, and it's called Mm -hmm. that because it innervates just about every major organ, our bladder, our intestines, our lungs, but most notably um, our heart. And we can measure the influence of the vagus nerve 
at the heart to give us an indication of how much your vagus nerve is activating or deactivating. It's, you know, sort of helping slow down the heart or it's withdrawing from the heart and the heart beats faster. So, if you didn't have a vagus nerve, the pacemakers at your heart, um, those sort of internal pacemakers to tell your heart how often to beat, your heart would mm-hmm. beat 105 times per minute. Wow. But people's heart doesn't don't beat 105 times per minute, and that difference between 105 beats per minute and your heart rate, say 70 or 80, is because the vagus nerve is coming down and modulating, slowing down the heart, right? Mm-hmm. And that's what makes it variable. So that's sort of the way to think about um, vagus nerve activity at the heart. Now, research for the maybe 20, 30, probably 40 years now has have studied this concept of vagal tone or cardiac vagal tone, which is the idea that if I measured um, an ECG from the two of you, I could come up with a number that is like your baseline, your individual difference, and how much your vagus nerve is helping to slow down your heart, how variable your heart is. And the higher that number, the better, right? So again, uh, another one of these things, young people have higher vagal tone than old people. Uh, Mm -hmm. Healthy people like athletes um, have really high vagal tone. But now um, even people like um, those who meditate a lot have very high vagal tone or greater heart rate variability um, than people who are sedentary or don't exercise. So some of the work that uh, my lab and I started a few years ago was this concept of vagal flexibility, which is we acknowledge that high vagal tone at rest, so when you're just resting and relaxing, that you have lots of variability between your heartbeats, and so your vagal, your vagus nerve is, is functioning well. But what happens when you have to do something that requires attention or respond to your social environment? So if you are attending to something, you have to have narrow attention, One of the responses that your body could have to help facilitate narrowing attention is that your vagus nerve could withdraw, should withdraw from the heart. So your vagus nerve comes off the heart, stops modulating it, and that helps. And that's part of the process of narrowing your attention. So we came up with a task um, using a vision science task where we can measure attention. So we measured people's attention while we measured um, their heart rate variability. And we were able to characterize people who had very good vagal flexibility. And what that meant is that they had high vagal tone at rest, but when it was time to attend at this dot tracking task, their vagus nerve withdrew and their heart rate variability plummeted, decreased. So the more your heart rate variability decreased, we said those were the people who were more flexible. Their body was responding given the task at hand. They needed to attend, their vagus nerve withdrew, and their heart rate variability dropped. So for each person, um, their vagal flexibility was seemed to be highly consistent, meaning regardless of you know testing them over time or testing them in different attention tasks, your vagal flexibility seemed to be like an individual difference, right? Highly um, stable within a person. So then we started taking this very seriously. So if somebody had good vagal flexibility, and you can almost think of it like your body um, sort of responding well and, and appropriately given the context, So people with better vagal flexibility, um, when we had them do emotion recognition tasks, so they would look at a picture of somebody with a facial expression or somebody feeling a certain emotion, the higher their vagal flexibility, the better they were at detecting other people's emotions. We also would put people through um, social evaluation where we either gave them really positive feedback or really negative feedback. 
And people with lots of higher vagal flexibility were just more responsive to the social environment. Which isn't necessarily entirely positive, I, I guess, because you're so they're more sensitive, really. So they'll suffer negative feedback more keenly as well. Right. Just for me to sort of summarize this in my own head. So you're saying at rest, it's good. Generally, it's good to have high vagal tone. Right, um, higher, right. Bit, higher variability. Yeah. Yeah. High variability. Right. Great um, make So we're talking about sensitivity, aren't we? The fact that, you know, in a way, like the way those um, mm-hmm. surgeons were able mm-hmm. to, you know, it wasn't like that you always have a particular response. It's that your response is sensitive to the environment, which obviously when you think about it, you, yeah. there is no response that is always the perfect response, right? Exactly. But I think a lot of um, stress and emotion researchers have often presented it as, well, if you ever have a blood pressure increase or if cortisol is ever high, that's bad. And that's just fundamentally not true. There are times when your body responds in a way that it's trying to deal with the environment. And there's not a single response I could think of that I would say that's universally bad. So there's one more question there. Now, what about uh, willing modification of that can we teach people to uh, modulate their vagal tone or is it a hopeless uh, endeavor (laughs) it's a great question because um i do think it's you know it's really hard to move around your body's responses um and but this is going to be one of those you know boring things that your grandmother your mom told you growing up which is Something like your your vagal flexibility and your vagal tone is strongly related to things like exercise, um, good sleep. So getting mm-hmm. really good sleep. So one of the worst things you could do is is um, be a short sleeper or deprive yourself of sleep. You're going to wake up with really low heart rate variability. Um, you need that nighttime to restore that parasympathetic system. So I do think there are um, activities that you can engage in that are totally under your control, like exercise, diet, and sleep. That's encouraging. That's, that's some good news. <laughs> yes, um, sleep, eat your vegetables, and exercise. Yeah. <laughs> who, who would have thought? <laughs> Don't fly different time zones. Yeah, right. academics here like us. Um, or eat, or eat aeroplane food. Probably that's probably bad. One one thing that I was interested in is we've been speaking about emotions and stress responses on the individual level, um, but you've done quite a bit of work about how stress and emotions travel from one person to the other person that you're interacting with, which kind of blows this thing wide open because, you know, we're kind of (laughs) thinking, oh, well, this individual has this kind of response, so they'll be fine. But in fact, these effects can sort of transfer from one person to another. So can you tell us a little bit about that? You've done some work with uh, mothers and babies and how, uh, tell us a little, little expand on that for us. That'd be great. Yeah. um, And I love talking about this. This It's actually one of my favorite topics to talk about. And that's this idea that our emotions and our stress are contagious, right? So if I have a social psychologist (laughs) Right, of course I have to love that, right? I mean, the irony that social psychologists for um, a century studied the individual with barely the acknowledgement of the presence of implied others um, still makes me laugh. Yes, so um, about 10 years ago, we really started to take seriously the idea that um, emotions could be transmitted from one, or emotions or stress or motivation, all these kind of hot affective states don't aren't just experienced in one person. They can be transmitted and manifested and affect people around them. Um, So we spent some time thinking a lot about this idea of affect contagion or stress contagion. Right. 
and, and capitalizing or leveraging what we knew about the body, right? So, you know, if I if I put somebody, um, put some sensors on somebody and I make them experience something stressful or, or rousing or intense, about three to four second delay, I'm going to see that manifested in the sympathetic nervous system response. So we're pretty good at saying when I feel X, there's going to be some short delay, and then I'll see it in this physiologic response Y. So our question was, well, could we leverage what we know about physiology from looking at one person's emotional state to see if it affects their partner who's not experiencing that emotion? They're only experiencing it via another person. So we, by far, we're not the first people to sort of think about physiologic synchrony as a way to understand affect contagion. Um, I mean, people had done it for years. Uh, Bob Levinson and Jock Gottman would study married couples and look at the extent to which um, the married couple would have synchronized physiologic responses um, during conversations. So we sort of leveraged all the old, um, the, the previous work on this topic, but with the sort of latest physiologic measures and also some um, very sophisticated analytic modeling uh, by Tessa West at NYU. And we approached this with the question of, okay, so if affect contagion exists in, in dyads and we can measure this with physiologic responses, it seems like it would matter how close that dyad is in terms of, you know, how yeah. um, how socially connected. And we thought we would start by asking these questions of physiologic synchrony and affect contagion and what we thought of the dyad that might be the closest, and that's a mother and her baby. So we mm-hmm. brought in mothers uh, and their 12 to 14-month-old infants into our lab in our very first um, dyad study. And, you know, we made the mom and the, and the baby very comfortable, and there was always an alternate caregiver like a babysitter or the dad. <laughs> came with her. And then we sort of snuck out the mom at some point and took her to a different room. Then we did a really mean thing. We made the mom experience a very acutely stressful task, a social evaluation, impromptu speech in front of two <laughs> stoic evaluators, giving her nasty looks, and then making her do a difficult mental arithmetic task out loud. It's one of these standard um, lab stressors that we use that makes everybody have increased autonomic arousal, increased cortisol, right. HPA. So it's, it's a pretty standard task. Well, we did that to the poor mom um, and made the evaluators leave the room. And as soon as the evaluators left the room, we just brought the baby in, into the room, put the baby right on the mom's lap. These are all pre-verbal infants, 12 mm-hmm. to 14 months old, who use their mother as a, like a social reference. Like, how do I feel? Let me look at my mom and she'll tell me how I feel. So, of course, the baby knows nothing about what just happened. And then we look at the baby's physiology. And what we found is that for the moms, and not all moms did the stressful task. Some moms did um, the same kind of task, but no evaluator, so it's not stressful. So they don't have an increase mm-hmm. in sympathetic responses. And what we did is when we brought the babies back on the mom's laps, it was only the moms who just completed a stressful task and not the moms who did the control task. Those moms who completed the stressful task had babies who had almost an immediate increase in sympathetic nervous system response. That is, those babies' heart rate and sympathetic nervous system responses increased just from um, being reunited with the mother. We then sent the evaluators back into the room just to talk to the mom with the baby on the mom's lap. And um, we looked at the extent to which the mom and baby's physiology synchronized. That is, it sort of would rise and fall similarly. Mm -hmm. And for the moms who had completed the stressful task, 
those moms and babies were more synchronized. Their physiology would rise and fall at the same time. They were like highly coordinated in their physiologic responses. And then one of my favorite findings of that study is that when the evaluators would offer a toy to the baby, if those evaluators had previously rejected their mother, and of course the baby knows nothing of this, the babies were more likely to avoid and not take the toy from those evaluators. That's amazing. (laughs) So we sort of saw this manifested in the behavior of the infant. Did it say in one of your papers that the the mothers who had had a sort of a positive experience, that that didn't transfer as as effectively as (laughs) as the mothers that had had a negative experience? Yeah, you know, sometimes, um, you know, data are what they what they are. And one uh, of the most, you know, unfortunate parts of, of the research that I do is that bad always seems to be stronger than right. good. Yeah. And I don't want that to be true um, for my own societal reason, but yeah. data don't care about yeah. my personal things. It's good to know, um, I suppose. Yeah, it's good to know. So I would say, and, you know, I've sort of, you know, accepted all of that um, because I think as a psychophysiologist, right, I'm I'm almost always studying um, these systems that are going to be more sensitive to threats in the environment Mm -hmm. that evolve to detect danger. And because of that, it it shouldn't be surprising Mm -hmm. that the negative affective states are more easily to transmit. And they're more easy to catch. Now, there are some interesting effects with calm states and the parasympathetic nervous system. I was talking earlier about heart rate variability. So we do see calm states being transmitted, but kind of the high arousal, positive affective states, uh, we've had more difficulty in the lab trying to find situations in which that's easily transmitted from one person to another. I'm not saying it doesn't exist. I'm just saying in my hands, we haven't found good evidence of it. Right. But like you say, it does sort of fit generally with the idea that it it kind of makes more sense for an organism to have a a really strong way of avoiding death um, than than missing out on getting a few extra extra i don't know nuts and berries so kind of exactly (laughs) so i have a a question uh going back to the uh the good versus bad and to some extent this is almost the transition to our next piece that we want to cover when i think of the lab studies i find that it's often harder to make people feel really good because, you know, they come into the lab and you're kind of a little bit uncomfortable. Like, who are these weird people in white? Uh, oh, I mean, that don't have to be probably white. lie to me and tell me about <laughs> trackers well, maybe and Yeah, do some maths in front of a crowd who doesn't that's like right, it. That's right, that's right. But but definitely, yeah, you know, you, you kind of like, it's it's not really your home. It's not your friends whom you're dealing with. This is like strangers. And then you're supposed to look at some cute pictures of puppies or i don't know like, i mean does that really make me feel good and what do you what do they want from me so that is the cure to negative so there is a slayer of a cast almost it seems where it's really hard to get uh, the positive and this is just maybe my observation than the negative but you started recently to expand beyond the lab right because lab study the other issue with the lab studies is they are you only can get that many people, especially if you have a uh, laborious design where you have to dress people in different suits and hook them up to physiology. There's only that many people you can run in a year. So can you tell us a little bit more about, um, well, generally, I mean, I guess it's a big question. Where do you see uh, there's this topic of uh, replications and robust psychological science that many discuss? Uh, where do you see the physiological studies, the psychophysiological 
empirical studies and how your lab is trying to push this a bit forward? Right. And it's a great question because I think back on my graduate school days and the very first subject I ever ran in a psychophysiology study took about two and a half hours to run one person. And then at the very end, she told me, and I don't want you to use my data, so delete it. And I remember that (laughs) night laying in bed thinking, how am I ever going to have a career? It's just awful. (laughs) And it took, you know, of course, took months to get the study going. And anyway, and I think it's actually a really fair criticism of our lab studies, which, and, and you brought up exactly the two points that I would say, which is, it's just not enough people. I mean, we end up hoping that we're seeing some signal in the noise, uh, but we're really bad at estimating effect sizes because we don't have the power. And I think that's a, a really fair concern. And two, they're artificial. All of our lab, right. I mean, as great as we are at the stress part, I think we're not good at the positive. But also, you know, the things that are positive in people's lives are their friends and their family and their and their successes. And that just is hard to create in a lab environment. So we've been really lucky. You know, I used to get so jealous when I saw people able to scale their research with, you know, these online studies. And I thought that's just never going to be me because how am I going to have a lab that I can reach thousands of people? And then we just got mm-hmm. really lucky um, with, I, I, I was helping Samsung validate one of the optic sensors that they had put in some wearable device. Right. And then it's kind of turned into, you know, a multi-year grant project where um, there's an optic sensor that's on the back of every um, Samsung Galaxy and Note phone that measures blood pressure and heart rate variability. So what I did was I created um, a three-week daily diary study. That's an app that you can get downloaded, and it's called MyBP Lab. And what this does is it has you report on the stress, emotion, and experiences of your life while measuring uh, your physiologic responses. And we launched this back in March, and we have more than 60,000 people enrolled in this. Wow. So it's just so exciting. And and why would people do this? Well, hopefully they're doing it to help science. Um, But we also, at the very end of the study, give you some insight. So we sort of tell you, Mm. when was your blood pressure highest? Who were you with? What were you doing? What time of day? We give them their sleep schedule. So there's some information that's gleaned. We've been thrilled from a research perspective of getting this kind of quality data at the number of subjects that we have. Um, So that's the first version. And then going forward, we're excited about creating many experiments on the app that people could join. um, And there'll be, and this will be launching in March, but there are many experiments that are related to things like improving your sleep, managing Mm. your stress. um, Checking the sort of effectiveness of different interventions, perhaps. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And we're and we're kind of agnostic, you know. Either an intervention works or it doesn't. But mm-hmm. now we have a lot of people with a really good, valid signal of their physiology and their self reports, and we're excited about um, doing this kind of science. I can't imagine ever not running lab studies. I mean, mm-hmm. when I think sort of the big picture, I hope that we do it well and carefully in the lab, and then we can scale uh, because I think those two, you know, lab versus field, do tell you complementary information but then the question is how much do they overlap and and what can we learn so yeah so we're really excited about this 
a couple of the things that seem most relevant to wisdom uh, that we've spoken about are the vagal flexibility and its relationship with social sensitivity and its relationship with being a good judge, um, which... they both seem very relevant to wisdom so you know nothing's going to be guaranteed for any individual but what in terms of can people do in terms of making them making use of that and that uh, work that you've done is there anything that people can do to uh, improve their legal flexibility and, and become better judges of characters or more sensitive to the environment yeah, I mean, I, I think the um, what we learned from that work, and, and really all of the work that I just um, spoke about today, is that there are the psychological factors that influence our responses and our ability to detect our environment and others, and there are physical factors. And as a psychologist, it's easy for me to talk about the psychological factors, sort of how we think about our motivation, our intent to try to understand somebody, right? Those are all important. Um, it helps slow us down. It helps remind us to sort of think, take a perspective of another person. Mm-hmm. And then there are these physical um, factors that influence these responses in our body, right? And so things like I said, exercise and and diet and keeping your BMI low and sleeping well, those are the physical factors mm-hmm. um, of which we have some control over. It's the integration. It's, it's not, you know, just thinking I run a marathon and I sleep well so screw the other person i don't have to take their perspective right that's not enough and and obviously the other side isn't it it really is i mean not to be boring but it really is about the mind and the body together as an integrated whole um, and thinking about how those two factors come together and in fact everything that i talked about today in all of my research it's all about the the integration of the mind and the body and i worry a little bit like i feel like mind body as a term has been co-opted by Mm -hmm. some extreme groups and i've even like played with the idea of coming up with something else because i'm a little irritated because i don't by the way and there's nothing wrong with like the a mind body perspective is that it's it's a serious mind body because we're really talking about the physiologic structure and the physiologic process mm-hmm. it's not body in like some ephemeral way i'm really talking about like the electrical signals of our body um right. the changes um that occur in in response to it so i think as long as you take the body seriously at a measurement perspective at an understanding level then i don't mind if you use mind body Okay, so I think we uh, got almost to the end of our podcast for today. The only few things that are remaining uh, is a brief summary of what we have covered. And unless uh, Charles objects... No, we'll go just, for it. I'd love to hear. I'd yeah. love to hear you <laughs> summarize an hour and a half of intense work. Yeah. Um, right. Go for it. <laughs> In two minutes. Go. And go. Yeah. Don't get stressed, right. whatever you do. Challenge. Challenge. Oh, no, you stress. You stress. <laughs> Always the stress. So we talked about the you stress and the de stress. There is not only one form of stress, but uh, you can also think about the stress as a challenge where you think that, you know, maybe your resources outweighing uh, the demands of the situation. But of course, in most situations, when we think about stress, we think about stress as a threat, as a de-stress, where we often may appraise the situation such that demands larger than the resources that we have at hand. Uh, we talked about the acute and chronic stress, and that the consequences of these types of stress can be very different. The chronic stress is really hard to adjust to, whereas acute stress you can rebound, and in fact, sometimes it can be of advantage. Then we talked about heart rate and heart rate variability. Talked about the vagus nerve, the wandering nerve, that lar- the largest one in the body uh, that connects a lot of our 
different organs, and uh, that by measuring the variability in the heart rate, we can approximate the vagal tone, which is often stand for this heart rate variability. The greater your vagal tone, the better your recovery, uh, physiological functioning, but also recently has been found out the more sensitive you are possibly uh, to the various demands of the situation. The shift in the tone, which is often reflected in the term vagal flexibility, is also something that is uh, indexing changes in the situation. So sometimes uh, you may as a function of the situation, if you need to attend to it, if it's threatening situation, you will change your vagal tone response. And that is just possibly, at least right now, viewed as a potential marker of social sensitivity that is embodied in your functioning of the heart rate. Then we talked about the transfer effects of stress and emotions and how it may transfer from mothers to daughters. A fascinating topic. The idea is potentially that maybe it's the touch or something about the close proximity to the other person, the physiology where uh, the baby may develop the physiological reactions that uh, the mother had and sort of develop certain synchrony uh, with the reactions. And finally, at the end, we talked about about the scalability of physiological studies that are often done in the lab to daily life. Quite often, this type of uh, studies, this research is done in small laboratories. And um, in order to really understand how the mind integrates with the body, uh, we often need to study how people react and how what their physiology is in daily life. And Wendy told us about her new app, My BP Lab, which is available if you're interested in participating in the study and have a Samsung phone. Okay, and that was all, I think. Uh, did I miss out anything, uh, Wendy or Charles? I was impressed. <laughs> no, that was it. That covered everything. I always kind of feel that I didn't really need to be here. If I could just let Eagle do, do that summary. Um, <laughs> the, the last two minutes. Yeah. Uh, excellent. Well, um, I think that was all then for today. Wendy, thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much for being here and explaining. Wendy. This was a, such an illuminating yeah. discussion. Uh, and uh, what a transition. We had a philosopher just a few weeks ago, and uh, now we switch from very sort of uh, broad questions right to the physiology. To our listeners, uh, once again, uh, thank you. Uh, please continue rating us on iTunes and watch out for the next episode. Thank you very much. Bye.